Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. This week, you'll be hearing from Assistant Pastor Chris Robinson. So last Sunday, uh, there was a polarizing sporting event that happened. And if you live under a rock, you probably still know what I'm talking about. Um, Now, I know that a lot of people in here even have told me before that they don't watch football anymore because of the whole um, national anthem thing, which I completely understand. I'm just telling you, I still watch it. Um, In fact, you know who one of my favorite teams is, and I think it goes without saying, it's the New England Patriots, but um, I said it anyway. And uh, just so you know, they're dead to me. Losing the first round of the playoffs, that's unacceptable. But the, but the other team that I grew up with, because of my dad being a Packer fan, was the Green Bay Packers. And uh, interestingly enough, last week as I was reading a book, non-football related, the author put in a story about Vince Lombardi. So if you're familiar with the Green Bay Packers, their coach in the 60s was Vince Lombardi. Little do people know that he spent three years after coaching the Packers with the Washington Redskins. I mean, it's forgettable anyway. The Redskins are forgettable, but (laughs) sorry, any Redskins fans, but nonetheless. So this boisterous coach, because he's often quoted at times, led the Green Bay Packers to two Super Bowls. Oddly enough, Super Bowl I and Super Bowl II, because during his time period, the Super Bowl just got invented, if you will. But they also had NFL championships prior to that, so he won three championships, then took them to Super Bowl I and Super Bowl II, which there were some conspirators, because this was the 100th anniversary of the NFL. Super Bowl I was the Green Bay Packers versus the Kansas City Chiefs. So there were some conspirators out there saying that the NFL is trying to get year 100 to be the same as the first Super Bowl, Green Bay versus Kansas City. Well, because Green Bay stinks, (laughs) they didn't make it. (laughs) But what struck me about this story, it really had nothing to do with football. It had more to do with Vince Lombardi. And one of the odd things about the story was that every year, it didn't matter who was on the team, the very first team meeting, he'd come in and say, gentlemen, this is a football. Obviously, he was holding a football. I I had one that had the Purdue logo on it, and it was partially deflated, so I knew that would would bring up a whole lot of other things I just didn't want to get into. But anyway... He would walk in and literally he'd pick up a football and he'd say, gentlemen, this is a football. Well, okay, you know, you have guys like Bart Starr, Ray Nitschke, Paul Horning, you know, names some of you know, some of you don't. 
But these were guys that were veterans. These were guys that played for years. And he would start every meeting by giving them the basics. So not only would he do the football thing, he'd take them out into the field, explain hash marks, explain the sideline, explain the goalposts, explain what an end zone is. Nowadays, the Indianapolis coach, coaching staff should probably explain that to the Colts, but because they can't reach it, you know? <laughs> but, but what got me thinking, what got me thinking was because I knew I was preaching, you know, we know the basics of football and stuff like that, but, but really, what are the basics of human life? I mean, I, I just prayed about how we take things for granted. You know, we just expect things to be there. But what really are the basis, basics of human life? You know those things that uh, if they were taken from you, you would just die? Um, I hold in my hand the Daniel Fast bookmark. For those of us that went through this, we could probably attest to the things that say foods to avoid, meat. I, I survived three weeks without meat. And let me tell you, after, the, after that last day, it was like all the meat I can get, right? <laughs> coffee. Uh, Bob Wilson was an avid coffee drinker. He survived the fa fast without coffee. I survived a day and a half. So kudos to you, Bob. <laughs> so, but the question, you know, what are the basics of human life? That extends so much deeper than coffee or meat or even our cell phones, believe it or not. And interestingly enough, I found research in 1943 from a psychologist named Abraham Maslow. Now, Abraham tackled this idea, see what I did there, and made this hierarchy or pyramid, if you will, of the basic human needs. He started at the base with the basic physiological needs, which is air to breathe, food to eat, water to drink, sleep, stuff like that which we can understand, right? The next level up was security. Now, he's not talking like having ADT in your house, but he, I mean, that is safety in a sense, but like financial security, job security, stuff like that. The third step of the hierarchy was love and acceptance. I mean, we could all, I don't, I think that goes without explaining, right? We all want to be loved, we all want to be accepted in a certain way. The next two, was ego, and then self-actualization. Those last two have a lot to do with self and how you perceive yourself. But what he said is those basic needs at the bottom have to be met before you can go up a tier, right? Pretty easy to understand. But did you know that this question was actually answered a long time ago? Approximately 25 AD by Jesus Christ. And that's where we find ourselves today is in Luke 4, starting with verse 1. So if you don't know the context of Luke 4, Luke 4 comes directly after the genealogy of where Jesus came from in chapter 3, but also comes after the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Similar account in Matthew, it's just they're rearranged differently. Matthew does the genealogy in the beginning part of Matthew, 
baptism in chapter 3, then he goes into the temptation of Jesus, which we're going to talk about. Luke 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit. Where he was being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. Well, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, soup, he couldn't have done this without the spirit filling him. I believe the human body can last up to three weeks without food. Anything beyond that, then possibly. I know uh, Gandhi lasted three weeks, 21 days, without food. So something supernaturally is happening here. Verse 3, and the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. In other words, if you really are who God says you are, the son of God, then you must have the power to take stone and turn it into bread. But Jesus responded. He answered unto him, Satan, saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now, you're probably asking yourself, well, how does that answer the question of the basic human needs? Well, I think if you understand what's being said, then you can answer the question. I will tell you, and I'll preface the rest of this message with the fact that this is a three-part sermon. It got so lengthy that uh, my wife said, well, you know, by the time 11.55 comes around, everybody zones out. So I was like, okay, sounds like a three-part message to me. <laughs> so we're going to start with the basic part of verse 4, the very first part, where it says, it is written. And as I told you before, Matthew 4 has a similar account, and Matthew 4.4 4 says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Similar accounts, saying the exact same thing, just worded slightly differently. No contradiction. Okay, so what does it mean if something is written? I mean, you all know what something written means, right? I mean, you've gone through grade school and something like that, and you've had to do handwriting, cursive. You wrote things down. Well, what did you write down? Well, typically characters, letters, words, right? That makes sense. So if you ask Webster, Webster will tell you that if something is written, it means to form characters, letters, words, or anything else on the surface of some material, typically paper nowadays, or depending on you know, technology, you type it out or even swipe it out or whatever, or speak it out. So it's something typically written with pen, pencil, or another instrument or means like inscription. So if you take yourself back in time, they usually use clay or stone tablets, and they inscribe the Word of God. You know, if you could think about how time-consuming that must have been, you know, so some of you are old enough to know that, but anyway. Cheap shot, yeah. So we know something is written as a means of recording something or inscribing it. And additionally, the way Jesus says this is to express authority. 
authority of what's being recorded, okay? Okay, so we know what it means for something to be written. The next question you have to ask is, what is written? Well, you all know the church answer, right? If I were to say, hey, what, what's written in the Bible? Everybody would be like, this God's word, right? Right? Congregation, this is the, this is the time where you respond. <laughs> right? We would all be like, yeah, this is God's word. Or you may be extremely reverent about it. This is God's word. And there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes when somebody that's not a believer on the outside looking in, and you say that to them, you believe that? Right? Have you ever carried your Bible around with you in public? And had somebody kind of give you an awkward face? Like, why do you have that? What, you actually believe that? Who's to say, you know, this might be a question they might ask, who's to say this book isn't some sort of myth, legend, or fairy tale? And just some stories put together for parents to keep their kids moral. I spent, as most of you know, the first 23 years of my life not being a believer. Um, I put my faith in self and in stuff I could trust, like math. Math, even still nowadays, is tangible. You know, taking things like 2 plus 2 equals 4, I get that. That makes sense to me. However, I will say that when I was going to Purdue University and got into a uh, linear algebra class, um, when they start throwing out equations at you, like, 1 equals mx plus b, and you have to solve for b. What, is that, what does that even mean? And where the answer could be a is 3, b is 4, how do you get 1 out of that? Right? So even in my younger years at Purdue, things started to question even things that were tangible. And to go along with that, while I was at Purdue, I was not a believer. I uh, didn't get saved until I started coming here, and that was not even, I met Jessica the summer after I graduated, and probably the summer afterwards, so that was 2006. So I didn't get saved until 2006, when pastor's messages were just getting through to me, I started praying a little bit more, started reading this a little bit more, but up until that point, I can remember having this little leather-bound Bible, a friend gave me up at Purdue, and uh, starting in the book of Revelation. And I don't know, for those of you who have ever tried to read Revelation, when you read the first part where it says, I am the Alpha and Omega, my first thought then was, is Jesus in a fraternity? Or is he some godfather of some fraternity? Because they're using Greek language, right? Alpha and Omegas. I don't know. Didn't make any sense to me. I tried to read as much as I could. I was like, I'm done. But then I got saved, and I started looking into what a believer would do as far as Bible reading and stuff like that. I can't tell you the exact point when it happened, but Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, were the first two verses I memorized. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I urge you in view of God's mercies to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It was verse 2 that really hit me, being transformed by the renewing of my mind. And at that time, it wasn't really scripture and praying that got to me. It was music. I'm a huge fan of Skillet. Skillet was what I, well, if you remember CD players, Skillet was the one I just kept on repeat. Um, the album Collide had a song that kept singing something, something deep inside that keeps my faith alive. And then I remember a band called Demon Hunter, which I know sounds really radical to some of you. I remember a song by them right when I was going to Emmaus that said, I hear you calling, setting fire to my soul. And that just kept ringing in my ears during Emmaus. So it wasn't, you know, scripture, even though the musicians had scripture in their songs, and it wasn't prayer that really got to me. It was the renewing of my mind in the media I was allowing in. Music, eventually movies. There was one point where I had a mass exodus of a lot of movies in my life, because I had a lot of movies. Uh, you know, I lived out in Dana in the middle of the country. There's not much to do out in the middle of the country a lot of times. So... So my life started changing. But what does this have to do with what is written? Well, interestingly enough, this book and Jesus make an outrageous claim. An outrageous claim that really, as I matured in my relationship with God and Christ, an outrageous claim that is even hard to remember or even materialize, if you will. This is the scripture, and it's the very word of God the very word of God, and not just some book. Because, you know what, it's real easy for me to say, well, today's sermon is on the basics of Christianity. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. Okay, so Pastor Chris, explain it to me. Well, we're going to go on a little journey. So this book and Christ make this outrageous claim. This is the very word of God. Okay, how do we know that? Other than the Bible saying it itself, how do we know that? Well, you got to start in archaeology and history. One of the very first major arguments against the Bible, being the Word of God, is the Hittite civilization. The Hittites are first mentioned in Genesis 15, and there was no archaeological evidence they existed. However, over the last two centuries, guess who's been found a lot of? The Hittites. It was almost like God was just waiting for some secular archaeologist or historian to be like, okay, I could believe in this book if this civilization existed. And God's like, start digging over here, and guess what you'll find? The last two centuries, it's almost been nothing but Hittite civilization stuff. Now, granted, there's been other things, but the evidence for the Hittites existing has been overwhelming. In fact, they found this treaty between Egypt and the Hittites, signed by Pharaoh Ramses II, and it was found by secular archaeologists. So not some believer went out and dug, it was some secular archaeologists that found this treaty by Pharaoh Ramses II and the Hittites. 
1993, an Israeli archaeologist found evidence of King David outside of the Bible. There was a 9th century stone that had a clear description on it that says, Defeat of the King of the House of David. So if you think in time, 9th century, and when David existed, we're talking little more than a few thousand years difference when King David actually existed to now, and his name was still being used. <coughs> Furthermore, we have discoveries in Qumran of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, clay tablets in Ebla, Syria, and tablets in Armana, which is alongside the Nile River, which help add to the historicity in archaeology of the Bible. Okay, so what I'm saying to you is, yeah, this may say this is the word of God, but secular science can also point to the fact that this is real, that this book existed. In fact, if you go back to uh, one, I think it was between 100 and 150 AD, is when they found the first manuscript of the book of John. Now, they use what's called papyrus to write a lot of stuff on. And papyrus is like really thin paper derived from plants. And because it is, any kind of moisture that got into it degraded it real quick. So the earliest New Testament document we have is between 100 AD and 150 AD. We can't pinpoint exactly, but it's between that time span. So we got history and archaeology on our side. What about the origin of the Bible? Well, we would say the church answer is it comes from God, right? Pastor Chip Ingram, you know, one of my favorites, writes a book called Why I Believe. And in his book, he makes an argument saying that the Bible's unity, the Bible's structure, and the subject of the matter argue for a supernatural author. Think about that. Because no editor or publishing house got a hold of the Bible back in the day, did they? We wouldn't have... Nelson's publishers or uh, Tyndale looking at the Bible, going through each tablet, you know, oh, well, that period doesn't belong there. No, we didn't have that. And the fact that the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, talks about the same thing, the Messiah, the coming of the Savior. Well, okay, well, that's great, but can you give me a little bit more? Yes, I can. The reason it needs a, a supernatural author, you have, listen to these numbers, 40 different authors with 20 different jobs or occupations, living in 10 different countries over a span of 1,500 years, working in three languages, mainly Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, with a cast of 2,930 characters, living in 1,550 different cities, of which the Bible is comp comprised of prose, poetry, romance, mystery, biography, science, and history, with the same central theme of the Messiah. So, I'm a numbers guy. I'm a numbers guy. I love math. Numbers are tangible to me. 40 different authors with 20 different jobs, 
living in several different countries, 10, in several different cities, 1,550, over a time span of 1,500 years, putting together this book that does not contradict itself. No man can do that. Yeah, sure, man had to inscribe and write it down, but God had his means for which he preserved this. Let that just sink in for a second. And let it sink into the fact that, have you ever worked on a group project where you tried to work with somebody else? And how hard, how hard where it's just the two of you, if you will, to be on the same page? Think about that. 1,500 years separated all these authors, and yet we can't even... Even people in the church can't do things together without having something terribly go wrong, if you will. And that, that falls back on what I said. If you think about, I'm preaching out of Matthew 4 and Luke 4, two variant accounts from a different perspective saying the exact same thing. So they do not contradict themselves. Because the reason I bring that up is because you'll have people that will read some passage of scripture that may not make sense to them, take it out of context and say, well, this book contradicts itself. They're like, well, do you understand the context? Because a lot of times we'll just read a passage that is useful for us without knowing what's being said around it or even before it or even afterwards. And we'll be like, well, that's what the Bible says because that's what it means to me. Okay. Maybe you should find a trusted friend or a trusted Christian and talk with them about it and work it out. Because a lot of times we do take a lot of things at face value, no matter what it is, and we just assume that's what it is. That's on us. Now my next favorite, one of my favorite reasons for the Bible. It's called transmission. What this has to do with is the Bible's purity and preservation. So, you know, you talk about working together in groups. Have you ever done or played the game telephone? You know, where you start out, I remember starting out with a message in eighth grade, no less, which was probably, you know, some of you think it was like 50 years for me, but anyway. You start out with, a, with, with this idea, John Wilkes Booth, shot Abraham Lincoln in, at Ford Theater, right? And by the time it goes down the line to the 10th person, it's Abraham Lincoln was riding shotgun with John Wilkes Booth, and he accidentally crashed his Chevy, and he's dead. You know, that's, that's how telephone works, right? So if you take this 1,500-year span of when the Bible was written, wouldn't you think that at some point there would be some sort of contradiction? If we played that game telephone... Maybe until you figure out what a scribe is. A scribe would take an original copy of the text that they had at the time, or a tablet, whatever, and they would carefully write letter by letter, usually by rows and columns, recheck it to make sure that their copy was just as good as the original, and then, if it didn't match, 
they would tear up the copy and start all over again. Which doesn't seem like a big deal if you're going through like a book like Lamentations, which is smaller. But if you get to the book of Isaiah, which has 61 or 62 chapters, I forget, I'm sorry. That's a long book. I'm, I don't know about you, but, uh, oh, made a little error. You know, try to smudge it or even try to write over it like it didn't happen. So if you get to chapter 61 of Isaiah and have to start all over again, that's not too much fun, is it? But what they did was they took the scroll, tossed it on the fire, time to start all over. And then the other reason the scribe was important is when they came to the place in the text that had the name of God, they wouldn't write the whole name. They would write W or Y H W H. Stop immediately and go and wash themselves because they knew that the word Yahweh was so reverent. They couldn't write it all down. They would go ceremonially wash themselves because they knew that they weren't holy enough to write the name. Then after they got done washing, they'd come back and finish it. If you think about how important the name of God was to them back then, and how important copying the scripture was to them, and then you, take, you fast forward 20, 20 years to, in a generation that we use J.C., and GD, in curse words, I think we've lost something. Now, I'm not blaming unbelievers only, because I know I've heard, quote-unquote, believers say that kind of stuff. And if you're somebody that's in here that has done that, stop immediately. Stop. You know, I've banged my hand, I've slipped on ice, and words that came out of my mouth I couldn't control. I get it. But if you happen to do it, and you know that you do it, stop. And if it happens, okay, immediately tell God you, you need forgiveness. Because you don't ever want to use his name like that. In fact, I've gotten to the point to where one of my favorite movies when I was growing up, I really can't watch anymore, Back to the Future. Because Marty McFly uses J.C., quite a bit. And you don't realize it when you're non-believer, but when the renewing of your mind starts to happen, then you start to see that I just, okay, I'm missing out on a good movie. So be it. I'll live. So for instance, when a scribe was to write down Deuteronomy 8.3, which Jesus quoted here, he would get to the last part, which says, a person cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that Yahweh speaks. He'd only write four letters, go wash himself. And what this means is that the level of focus and the meticulous copying ensured an extremely high percentage of accuracy. Especially when copies were handed down from generation to generation. And remember I told you, the Bible's in three main languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Over time, as generations and people changed, we got more languages, right? So you have this meticulous copying over generation to generation, and even over several languages. So you start to have Latin come in, Syrian, Coptic, 
Armenian, Gothic, Georgian, and Ethiopic. All different copies of the same Word of God from different areas by different people all saying the exact same thing. And one of the biggest evidences to go along with this is that over 24,000 copies are in existence today. So I gave you all those numbers of all those people. Well, think about 24,000 copies of the same text in different languages from generation to generation. So then you take in something like the Dead Sea Scrolls. And once it finally got completed, the excavation finally got completed in 1956, you know what they did? They took those documents, knowing that they were old, and said, okay, what's our most original document that we have? So they had to go back to the Vatican and get the documents and lay them side by side. They actually started in the book of Isaiah and found that the entire book that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls with the entire book that we had at the Vatican lined up to a percentage of 95 plus percent. We're like, okay, where's that other 5% if you will? Well, as time goes on and people progress, punctuation and spelling changed. Same exact message. No theological difference. So when Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God, I got to tell you, the evidence is overwhelming. Which is another reason why I told you that Jesus uses it is written as authoritative. So if we can believe that this Bible or scriptures is a better word, is really a historical archaeological document, and there's no contradiction, then there must be some sort of authority, right? So what about Jesus? Well, in the sense of revelation and prophecy, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of of his nature. He upholds all things by the power of, guess what? His word. Which we would know if we read John 1 and John 1, 1, 1, 14, that Christ is the word, where John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen, excuse me, his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So the Bible reveals that Christ is the son of God and the exact representation of God, and he's got power in his words. Revelation 1 does the same thing by, by illustrating the fact that if you read the first part and understand it, unlike I did back in the day, Christ himself is the author of the book through John, and that revelation, well, reveals who Christ is. But let's get back to a little bit more tangible, you know, some meat, if you will. 
What about prophecy? There are over 300 prophecies in the Bible about Jesus Christ alone, of which a vast majority have been fulfilled up to this point. But to give us a better picture of me just telling you that, you have to take a gentleman by, that went to Pasadena City College and was the head of the math and astronomy department who wanted to just find out what's the probability of just fulfilling at least eight prophecies? What's the probability? His research led him to this conclusion. If you were to take a man, put him in the middle of the state of Texas, which we all know how big Texas is, right? Stack up around him silver dollars, so this is a quarter, but if you were to stack something like this, the silver dollar is a little bit bigger, about two feet high, so maybe up to about just below my knee, have this man blindfolded and walk through the entire state of Texas looking for one silver dollar while blindfolded, blindfolded with an X on it. Thus your probability of just fulfilling eight prophecies. And Christ has already filled almost 300. It's like one to the 10 to the 13, 14, 15 power, a number so big your mind would explode. And this is a guy from a guy that didn't believe. He just wanted to know what the probability of this happening would be. And thankfully, he looked for it. Just eight prophecies being fulfilled, and we've almost got 300 of them. So what this illustrates is the fact that Jesus, in the New Testament writings, helps bring together the writings of the Old Testament through revelation and prophecy, thus making the entire scripture, not just part of it, the word of God. Because some of us, some people nowadays especially, only read the New Testament. Well, I find that very hard to believe because the only testament that Jesus had during his time was the Old Testament. And granted, they misinterpreted the Old Testament back then, but he reinterpreted it for us. And exactly why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 again, he says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from which you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good word. He didn't just say some of it. He didn't just say the letters that Jesus spoke that are in red in some people's Bibles are what you're only supposed to be reading. Christ, through revelation and prophecy, brings together the old with the new. And Paul tells Timothy, all scripture, every scripture, everything that you, you and I have in this book is the word of God. Not just some of it. Not just the part that sounds good to you. Not just the part that will help you go buy your new house or new car. All of it. Theologian R.C. Sproul reasons all scripture this way, and I apologize if this doesn't come quite off 
simplistic, but R.C. Sproul is a pretty good thinker. So I tried to dumb it down to my terms, so hopefully you can understand it. He says, we can think of the Bible as basically reliable and trustworthy on the basis of sufficient historical evidence. Based on this historical evidence, then, there is strong evidence to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior. If Jesus being the Son of God is true, this makes him an infallible authority. Thus, if he's an infallible authority, then Scripture is more than just generally trustworthy. It is the very Word of God. And Jesus would say so in Matthew 22, saying it was in divinely inspired, without error, and infallible. And then again here in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 as the final authority. Then the word, if it, then if it comes from God, is, is utter, utterly trustworthy because God is absolutely trustworthy. We can make this conclusion. On the basis of, of the infallible authority of Jesus, the church believes all scripture to be absolutely trustworthy and infallible absolutely i mean when you think of that word absolute in our nowadays where relevant makes more sense what's true for me may not be true for you society god is not a relative god he is an absolute god we struggle so much with what truth is guess what where it is it's right here Jesus makes the outrageous claim in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Amplified Version says it, I am the only way, and I am the real truth and the real life. Now, I know this turned into an apologetics message to understand what is actually being written here. But Jesus brings together the Old and New Testament like this. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Do you see that last part as to why I made this an apologetics sermon? This will not pass away until it's all accomplished. There needs to be a sense of urgency in those that truly believe they're the children of God or a believer. That maybe we need to spend more time with him. And this is a good place to start. But essentially what Jesus is saying, every minute detail of God's word to the smallest of strokes which can be punctuation or anything like that, will be fulfilled. Which I think leaves us with one, what are you going to do with that? Well, I will answer that. As the music team comes up, I want you to think about where is the Bible in your life currently? I mean, is it just some book sitting on a shelf building up dust? Is it a book on your coffee table? Because that used to be the old way of having your Bible. Is it on your phone? 
no problem with that. But it's easily more accessible. How do you apply all this information that I just gave you to your life? Is it just words? Did I just come up here and tell you, hey, the Bible's real. We should all just believe that, right? Or does it demand a choice? I tell my youth group on Wednesday nights, look, God gave you a free will. I can't tell you whether or not you should believe in God. That's a choice you have to make. But I can tell you what he's done in my life and in others' lives, especially through this, for you to make that choice. I want them to make that choice, right? But I don't want them to feel like they're brainwashed. I don't want them to feel like I'm doctrinating them. Like, if you don't come to youth group on Wednesday nights and believe, get out. No, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide them evidence, not only scientifically, if you will, but in my own life, for them to make a real choice. And that's what I'm doing here today for you. Is aside from me, this is, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. No, this is the very Word of God. We've got science secular science behind it to prove that it existed when it says it existed and has the very words of God in it. So aside from me giving you facts and figures, what is this going to do for you? How are you going to change? I have five R's, if you will, not, not being a pirate or anything, but the, but the first of which being just read it. Just read it. If you're a new believer, get a Bible app that tells you where to start and get a Bible on your phone, tablet, whatever works for you. Just read it. And if you're an existing believer, ask yourselves, what am I going to stop doing so I can start spending more time in here? Receive it. Ask the Holy Spirit for it to come into your lives, first and foremost, upon salvation and say, God, what are you saying to me? One of the best things that I've found in my own life is just write the verse down. If it resonates with you as you read it, write it down. Try to memorize it. Try to know what it's actually saying. Research. I did a bunch of research for you. Don't take my word for it. Go out and do your own. Go out and find reasons to believe. Do research. Remember, as I, I've said before, memorize a certain passage. You can all recite the Lord's Prayer, right? That's memorizing scripture if you can recite it. And lastly, reflect on it. How will you be different today by what you've read? Because the worst thing we can do is just take in head knowledge and not do anything with it. I just gave you a lot of head knowledge. That's great. But what's it gonna take from it to get to here to here? Or even for you feelings like Christians, how's it gonna take to get from here to here? I heard it said the other day that eternity for most Christians is only 18 inches away. What he's saying is that there's 18 inches between your brain and your heart. It, eternity is getting those two things to coincide to figure out what's in here. So eternity for some of us is only 18 inches away. Get the knowledge from here to here and get the knowledge from here to here. 